The Ladder is brought to you by Squarespace, who make building a website to show off your creative work as easy as pie. Not only are the templates slick, the site's responsive, and the plugins incredibly powerful, but you can also easily hook up a custom domain, and to make sure that people take you seriously, get a professional email address rather than relying on your teenage Hotmail account. Don't underestimate the impact of that, folks. I've long been urging my students to get a proper email address, and it works. Here's one of them, Erin Blamere, who is part of Northern Art Collective Shy Bands, has seen the results firsthand. Having a professional email address for our collective allows us to maximise efficiency for our communication. It means we can get things done a lot faster and people recognise our emails when they come into their inbox. It allows others to view us as professional creatives rather than students and it creates a sense of validity to the communication that we put out. Get your work online and get that email address hooked up today. Use the code INTERN at checkout for 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The Ladder is hosted by podcast.com, who along with hosting services have a purpose-built podcasting studio in central Manchester where you can try and make something half as good as this, or maybe even better. Good luck with that. Head to their site now for everything you need to know to start your own podcast. Find them at podcast.com. Welcome back to The Ladder, a new podcast from Intern, seeking to investigate and demystify the world of work in the creative industries. Last time out, we set about trying to unpick the issue of the gender pay gap and quickly discovered how sprawling, complex and insidious a problem it is. In this episode, we're going to seek to answer some of the questions that were raised last time, speaking to individuals who tackle workplace inequality on a day-to-day basis. No matter what stage you're at in your career, hopefully there'll be some actionable advice here to help you level the playing field in your workplace or career. If you haven't listened to our first episode, stop what you're doing and begin there. We've got a lot to pack into the next half hour and it'll make a good deal more sense if you're up to speed. Go, go! Right, everyone else, let's get back to business. We ended the first episode with Dr. Melanie Levick-Parkin's theory on the fundamental building blocks of gender inequality in the workplace. Here's a little reminder. The devaluing of female labour is ultimately a misvaluing of all the labour that goes into society anyway. Um, Yeah, I think there's a very fundamental flaw in how our communities have been built around those value constructs. I believe there should be full participation of women in the public uh, space and full participation of men in the private space. How, though, would that kind of social change come about? For Melanie, it's pretty simple. But it would mean a major policy change whereby everyone is required to take equal time off when starting a family. Unless that is enshrined in law, employers will always look at... uh, 26-year-old graduate, female graduate, and go, oh, she might be going off on maternity within the next five years or so. Do I really want to have to train her in? And then, you know, even at that stage, that thought is there. And I know people in design in the design industry and small who have smaller design agencies, they talk about this as well, saying, look, you know, I'm not sexist. I'm not, but my business can't handle it. That's why it needs to be enshrined so there's not really a great amount of choice. It needs to come 
from the top. But in order to do that, we as a society need to elect people who say that that's what they will do. And in order to elect those people, we as a society need to think that that is a worthwhile thing Mm. to do. And I don't think we're quite there yet. I agree with Melanie. We're not quite there yet. While making shared parental leave compulsory would help to eradicate gender bias from employers, it's pointless to assume that every family unit would want to split time 50-50. As Mel asked in our last episode... What are we asking to have equal participation in? Is it worth being equal in that? Asking your political representatives to push to end gender pay disparity is still a good start point for bringing about change. Ensuring that the issue remains on the agenda will do no harm. As we've seen with the recent pay gap reporting measures put in place by the government, it can be a means of getting the issue in the public eye and furthering the conversation. That kind of action can influence businesses to rethink their approach to inclusion, diversity and equality, which, in the more immediate term, could help a lot of women to rise up the ranks where the path might not have been as apparent beforehand. The actions of big businesses on key issues are often influential as well. So I smashed open my piggy bank and got the train to London to see what the major players were doing. The RBS building at Bishopsgate, opposite Liverpool Street Station, was my destination. As I met a woman with an illustrious career to her name, who has been a key advocate for diversity and inclusion in the world of finance. I'm Heather Melville, OBE. I am the Head of Business Inclusion for Corporate and Private Banking. I look at all things inclusion and diversity through the eyes of the business, so the commercial side of it, with our clients, looking at how we upskill our own employees to have those conversations. So it's quite an exciting time for us as an organisation because for us, high on the agenda is creating a really inclusive workplace. And we've started with gender and we're continuing with gender, but we've also added BAMI and all the other strands behind it. I've been here for 16 years. I only plan to come for two. So I still don't know how the other 14 years uh, kept me here. But it's been a really exciting, but also a really challenging environment because we've been through so much change. And actually, during that time, it's been really quite provoking to see the progress that we've made as an organisation. We're not an organisation that tell the whole world about what we're doing. And in many ways, that's a really positive thing. We're all about, let's get it right inside, let our customers and let our staff be advocates for us. By building conditions that are genuinely attractive for their own staff, RBS and others like them can potentially secure the best talent and as a result compel their competitors to offer similar incentives and approaches to recruitment. Also key are clear opportunities for progression within their organisations. I think the wider thing for us really is not confusing pay gap with equal pay which I think is what some people do. And I think the bit which says, actually, you've got to build your pipeline so that you've got the right people in the right jobs so that when they apply for those roles, they're paid the same. And and that's, that's something that takes time to build. You know, I meet thousands of women who say to me, I don't think I'm ready to do that job. And I amazing men that tap them on the shoulder and say, actually, you can do that. I'm going to help and I'm going to sponsor and I'm going to support you to do that. That's the kind of activity you want to see happening more of. You know, um, I think it's 
I think it's a bit of a challenge for people to say that women don't have the confidence because I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think women don't necessarily open up and talk about themselves in quite the same way that men would. And some men, because not all men, we all tell the whole world about who they are. But I think it goes wider than that from being in schools, from being educated, from the careers advice that they get. You know, so I've seen on many occasions, you know, the career advice was tell a woman, I don't think you can do that role. So at a young age, they're starting to put it in their minds. But a young man, yeah, you'd be great for doing that. So, you know, for us, we go into the schools as well. We want to showcase more role models, men and women, people of different ethnicities doing different types of jobs. And it's about the best person for the job, not a select group of people being propelled into a job because that's going to have a negative uh, impact. But Heather acknowledges that arriving at a scenario where the best people are who make up your team isn't something that happens overnight. The pay gap is the pay gap, right? I think it's phenomenal that this country have decided after all these years and all the parties are coming together now, so all the political parties are coming together to say this is an issue that we have to look at. So, you know, congratulations to all the thousands of companies who submitted. I know it was painful. I know it was tough. Somebody had to be first um, and it opened them up to... um, I guess, to the wider population as well as their own staff. But you've got nothing to hide because the starting point was then. And I think what's really great is if I even think about my own organisation, yes, in the world of finance, our own industry, we have got a huge gap. But we've got a huge gap because if you look predominantly at the makeup of people in our organisations, they tended to be over the years the same type of people. Four or five years ago, we started to address this so long before the pay gap was being discussed. So for me, I I can actually sit here and feel quite proud that we are doing a lot of work progressively that's going to see that change. So if I look at today where we sat, we have targets across the whole bank, which says by 2020, we will have 30% of women in senior roles, right? We're at 36% at the moment. But actually, we're not stopping there. What we're now saying is, across every single business franchise. And that means everybody's accountable. And that means it means looking at our talent, how we're building up our talent, which then takes it to the whole place around flexible working. Because flexible work and the flexibility in your role is actually what then we know drives a lot of women to come out of the workplace to take care of families. But actually, we've made this something that is not just about gender, it's about people. So more and more young men, we're encouraging them to work flexibly. The whole thing around shared leave, paternity leave, you know, mat leave, those kind of things. So if you create those kind of environments, actually, you start to see there's a change, a societal change in how people's careers are progressed. For companies who don't operate on a corporate scale, some of the approaches that Heather has overseen may be a little daunting. But as my dear mother often reminds me, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Piggy bank already looted, a flight to Colorado was never going to happen for me. But I was determined to speak to someone from Buffer to see how a company of just 77 people has grown, having established a workplace culture defined by transparency and diversity. To my delight, Haley was happy to make some time to field my questions over a slightly better internet connection than we mustered in our first episode. My name is Haley Griffiths. I've been at Buffer for the past two and a half years, and I primarily manage our public relations as well as edit our blog about transparency, where we talk about salaries and company culture and being 
a remote company. So for the past three years, we have looked at our gender pay gap and we've looked at what men and women make at Buffer and like pitted them, you know, sort of like compared them. Um, so we we were releasing our pay analysis this year at the same time that the deadline was coming up for the UK for all of their businesses to be releasing their numbers. And we were we very much admire the advancements that the UK is making here in asking companies to release that information. Previously, we've had very few people that we could compare ourselves to in terms of how are we doing. We hear a general number, but the problem with that is that some people are reporting what men and women earn in the same role. And some people are reporting what men and women earn throughout the entire organization, which is what they did in the UK, which is where you get usually that problem of fewer women in senior positions. And so when we did that, um, it's called the, the unadjusted pay gap or the uncontrolled number for the pay gap of just what every female and every male earns at Buffer. We, we would find that that's not something that many American companies do. And so it was looking like we had more of a pay gap because everyone else was doing the adjusted numbers or it was like the same role and the same location maybe. So we're very excited that the UK is doing that. And we report both numbers and we've done that for a few years now. I mean, for us, what's interesting is we are still only about 70 people. So I think that in the UK, it was companies over 200. So we're still not at the same level exactly, but it's getting closer. Um for us, the adjusted number, which is when you look at people in the same role, in the same location, that for us is is always the same because we use a salary formula. So if you're looking at someone that has the same role in the same location, they have the same experience level, they're always going to be paid the same um, and there's no negotiating. So this is this has always been the case at Buffer. Um, so that number is is maybe, I don't know, more or less exciting just because it's it's sort of like how things have always been. Whereas the unadjusted number is where we do have a gap. And that would be that women earn just over 9% less than men, which is better than the industry standard, but still not something that we're very happy with. We, we feel we still have a lot of work to do there. The thing for us is that we have twice more than twice as many men than women on the team. So at the time of our last analysis, which was in April of 2018, we had 48 men on the team and 21 women. So for us, it feels more like clearly we're paying people fairly and we're paying people the same. So it's more of a, a problem with diversity. And we went through, um, a time at buffer where we weren't hiring and we've, we've now shifted back to hiring again and we're in a great financial position. We're growing our team quite a bit this year. So we're looking forward to diversifying our team quite a bit. And then hopefully next year that will, either remove the gap or lower it lower it substantially. It's great to see that at both RBS and Buffer, despite their differing scales and industries, the issue of the gender pay gap has long been on the radar. As a result, both are making huge strides forward. Ultimately here, I feel that it's key to point out that when you're looking to make changes in a business to improve diversity, inclusion and representation, you're not going to see results overnight. In Buffer's case, Transparency has been a key policy put in place by founder Joel Gascoigne, and I was keen to understand how the other elements of that had been personally attractive to Haley. 
Yeah. It's fun to have discussions with everyone about this on in, in terms of colleagues. Everyone feels from the people that I've spoken to at Buffer, most of us love the transparency and we love that there is no negotiation in the salary formula. I think that a big thing for everyone at Buffer that this transparency does in our salaries, but also just the organization-wide transparency is it really builds trust. We feel like we know that Buffer as a company or, you know, the executive team, no one is hiding anything from us. So that's great. Personally, I was very excited to join Buffer with transparent salaries. I think the main thing was for with me was that there is no negotiation in the salary formula. That's something that I personally don't excel at. And in a traditional organization, my salary may be lower if I'm not great at negotiating. But within Buffer, I know that I'm treated fairly and that I'm paid like my peers and equally to men who might do the same role. Um, I'm the only one that does public relations, but just on the marketing team, it's um, it's very nice to see that. So I think for me as well, it's also it's built a lot of trust and. I, I think that I agree with with Joel and with our values there that there is there is nothing for us to hide, especially since we do use a formula for transparent salaries. So we're we're sure that we're paying everyone fairly. The formula stands to have a big impact for staff at Buffer, as it means that salary negotiations do not take place. For Haley, given her research and experiences, that was one of the things that made joining the company so attractive. I've read many articles and there's been a lot of research on the fact that women tend to negotiate less than men. And women also will not apply for a role, whether it's within their organization or outside of it, if they don't meet, they tend to not apply if they don't meet every single criteria. Whereas with men, they'll look at like 75% of the bullet points. They'll say, you know, I meet most of those and then they'll apply. So there's definitely a difference in how men and women tend to wrap their brains around things. And I do think that that's been more popularized and that women are are more aware of this issue now and there are classes on negotiation and there are many books that you can read um, and that managers hopefully are becoming more aware also. I think that education portion would be a big factor in helping to close the gender wage gap. But I've experienced it personally at organizations where I don't negotiate. I hadn't negotiated for my initial salary. And I later found out that other people who had made a lot more money than me. And it was just, it was just because of that. It wasn't because they valued my skill set less. I mean, they, in a dollar sense, they did put a lower value on my skill set, but I later asked for more money and I was able to get an increase. Um, So it was more about negotiating and less about the value that they put on the role that I was in. A 2016 study by Glassdoor claims that 68% of women in the US did not negotiate their salary compared to 52% of men. Culture around negotiation varies across the world, but it's certainly something worth considering next job or project that you take on. If you don't work for a company with a transparent salary structure, or if you're a freelancer, it can be tough to figure out what your salary or rate should be. But Marlin Pearson, head of global development at Glug, believes that you should gather as much information as you can from those around you. Like I've started asking my friends, I'm not sure if they're, you know, comfortable with me asking, but I need to know, I need to figure out a way of getting my own little right card. Like, how how does this industry work? You know, what are people paying a freelancer? What are people, you know, people paying a permanent staff member in this level? What, what can I expect in five years time? What can I expect in six years time? Mm -hmm. If I do this, 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 because it is a bit, you know, unless we know the rules, we can't play the game. And I think it's just that it is about being transparent now that enough is enough. 
here is what here it is it, you know and this is what it is and now everyone can take action from there and rise up together because it is it's not ugly to talk about money like it's actually it's so you know liberating to yeah. be able to have a money you know money conversation with someone and just go uh-huh you charge I don't know 200 quid more than me for a freelance project or I uh, charge more than you and how does that work and you know it gives you arguments and confidence in going into your next gig or your next you know salary debate when you know what everyone else around you have got. We were joined by Imriel Morgan you'll remember her from the last episode who also has a tip for where to find out what you should be aiming for. Things like Glassdoor have really helped with that, actually. They've really democratised uh, access to information that you wouldn't ordinarily have, and it's anonymous, and you can see how much this person got paid. So when you're going into that interview, you know that I'm working... I don't, I don't want to say a company's name because I've done that before and got in trouble. <laughs> uh, and as long as I worked there, I just made an analogy, and they were like, that's oh, yeah. not our brand. So, um, But, like, <laughs> you can go into... A, when you're going into certain companies, you know that, that's, mm. that the last person that was there was on that salary. And I think... The more we can use things like Glassdoor and similar um, yeah. like platforms, mm. we're kind of in a better case. And I think LinkedIn's added like elements of that to the job description. Like this is the yeah. salary band that you should be looking at for this job. Yeah. And I think it helps women know that going mm. in, even if you don't have the experience, like <clears throat> this is still the skill level and this is the the amount that you can basically earn for you this. Should. Yeah, and you yeah. should. And I've always told every one of my sisters and uh, go for the top end. In fact, go a couple more. Just boldly yes. ask because all they could do is say no like yeah. if they say no then it's like but they still want you for the job like yeah, yeah, yeah. they're just gonna be like oh okay well no we can't do that all right well yeah. fine <laughs> but it's, it's knowing your you know your value and yeah. adding tax on top of that yeah. like actually it is because it unless you ask for more you're never gonna go out you know get there so mm-hmm. i always do that and i think you know it's i don't find it hard to talk about money I never, I've never done that because I just find it interesting as, you know, the way that we can earn and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, grow um, with and alongside, you know, capital and uh, money. But I also know that it's, it's the, you know, the knowledge gap where people go, I have no idea what I should be asking for. So I'm going to Google this and I'm going to take the lower band because I'm not, not really sure whether I should be asking for more. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. But it's just doing your research and asking your peers. Like it will help you go into your salary you know debates or discussions or um sort of meetings with your bosses or even for a paid freelance gig or whatever it might be um with knowledge that you can just back up they're so right you have to ask for more to aim for the upper salary band and if there's a wage negotiation afoot start by asking for more than you're content to walk away with so that once you've haggled down you're still very comfortable with the rate If you're a freelancer, like Marlin says, it's really valuable to know what others are being paid, whether they work in your role or not. Start piecing together a rate card so that you know how your pocket of the industry is structured and how to correctly gauge your value in a monetary sense. From the personal to the global, it's time to get a feel for how the issue of gender parity can be tackled around the world. Till Leopold is the project lead for education, gender and work at the World Economic Forum, whose work on the subject is as comprehensive as it comes. So uh, just in terms of informing the global public debates, the main thing that we do is this annual uh, benchmarking 
of the Global Gender Gap Report, of whether the world is making progress on, on gender parity. And so that we, we really hope can inform a lot of debate in, in all these more than 140 countries uh, that, that, that we're measuring in the report. But then uh, beyond that, actually, at the World Economic Forum, we have quite made quite a conscious decision that we actually do not want to leave it at that, but that we really want to have an impact on the ground and, and work with the most relevant stakeholders to make a tangible difference on gender parity. And so because of that, we set up these uh, World Economic Forum gender parity task forces. We currently have four of those in Latin America, in Chile, in Argentina, in Peru and Panama. Uh, but we also recently started one in France as well. So we're looking at this model and we think this model can be interesting for countries uh, around the world in, in, in different cultural settings as well. And so what we're really trying to do there is to make a, a difference uh, around gender parity in four dimensions. So women's labor force participation, um, the issue of gender gaps in, in pay and, and also women entrepreneurs not receiving the same level of investment that you see uh, for male entrepreneurs, uh, the issue of progression and so the question of women in, in management and in leadership positions. And lastly, uh, the question of um, gender parity in the education system and also imbalances, for example, around you know less uh, girls getting, going into subjects such as uh, science and technology and engineering. Fundamentally, though, there's something that Till feels it's vital to understand. I think the starting point must be just simply that this is not like an issue for women. This is not a women's problem. These are very fundamental, important functions that that we all need across our societies to have a fair and and well-functioning society. And it is essentially everybody's job to to help uh, making that work. Perhaps the Forum's best-known contribution to the debate is their annual Global Gender Gap report, which they've published since 2006. I'll let Till explain the approach. So we look at the economic gender gap, uh, and that is perhaps the area that receives the most attention, but we also look at gender gaps in education, in health, and in, in the political sphere as well. And we truly do take that global perspective. So we're looking at more than 140 countries across all cultures of the world, across all world regions, across all levels of economic development and so on. So uh, our starting point really is this, this very global perspective. In developing countries and those where there are still restrictive laws that stop women's progress, there are a lot of what Till calls quick wins fundamental changes that would radically accelerate the movement towards gender parity. If, like me, you're fortunate enough to live in a country where those issues are a thing of the past, then the incentives for businesses who, along with their leaders, can play a key role in progress have never been clearer. So, I mean, of course, there is a very clear values-based case for gender parity. But, I mean, as far as the economic dimension is concerned, actually, this is quite a good topic to really demonstrate that there really is this win-win uh, for economy and society and, and for business in gender parity because uh, it, it is actually just empirically true that you know having more diversity, more more, more equal, gender equal representation, for example, of your board and having uh, you know more gender parity across your whole workforce actually does lead to uh, better financial returns for businesses. I mean, this is. Uh, there's a huge range of studies that show that, but it is also, if you think about it, it is actually not so hard to 
to see because obviously if your if your business you for example what you care about is to be able to have a deep pool to recruit the best talent from so obviously if you have a bigger pool of candidates to to look at and and really like you, you have a much deeper access to all the talent that that the country has uh, which their parity gives you of course you know that will be beneficial to the business and and in a similar way you wouldn't want that to be crippled by you know only having uh, actually a few people taken into serious consideration for that so there, there is a real sort of uh, win-win if you want to use that term and and there is a real business case for gender parity and in a way that actually makes the job of advocating for this to to the business community a lot easier and there are it's it's really not an, an understatement to say that there are more and more business that that get that so there is actually quite a large list of household name companies that are uh, really now uh, championing gender parity both internally in in their in their companies but also uh, you know, like kind of externally. While the World Economic Forum focuses on policy level interventions, essentially working with business and governments to build the conditions that will benefit all parties by ensuring that women are not discriminated against in the workplace, Till also has some ideas of how you can make a difference in the gender pay gap movement. So, uh, I mean, I think it's right what you said that at the World Economic Forum, we, we don't necessarily give recommendations for individuals, but at the same time, uh, you know, this, I think the outlines of the change that needs to happen uh, to make gender parity a reality are, are quite clear. So one thing that it certainly will help is actually getting more men involved in this debate overall. And of course, at the World Economic Forum, we, we speak, uh, of course, at our various events uh, to, to business leaders. So, for example, if you are in any kind of you know, leadership position across society, what you can do is you can call out uh, you know, injustice and inequality. So, for example, you've had this trend recently, which is very positive at, uh, you know, at conferences, at scientific conferences, at business conferences, uh, to, for example, demand panel parity and, and much greater equality in representation of who actually gets to speak on these panels. And, uh, for example, you really have had male researchers, scientists, uh, CEOs demand to to have equal representation of women in the panels and in the conferences where they actually speak. So this actually has a huge symbolic effect, role model effect for people. Um, in a similar way, you sometimes have this point in, in the business debate that, for example, when there's a senior leadership position to fill, there just are not any uh, qualified uh, women around to fill those positions. But, for, I mean, that is actually quite an excuse because, for example, if the first time you ever look for any qualified women is, is uh, you know, essentially when, when you receive some media pressure to, to fill a spot with a woman, then you also clearly have not thought this issue through in a way that, that really is the most beneficial for your business. So if, for example, if as a business leader you think much more clearly who are actually some of the, the strong women uh, managers in your, in your company that you could be championing and in terms of kind of the long-term planning for the business, uh, what, what are some of the female business leaders that could be the next generation of, of your business? So that is, you know, kind of in the sphere of business and if you're more of a, of a, of a business decision maker. So, I, I mean, I, I think uh, we still sometimes see too many excuses there and, and many people could be 
could be making a, a difference with the individual actions. But of course, that again, really, it, you don't need to actually be a sort of a CEO to to make a positive influence here. So we, I think, we all can in our in our daily life make a make a difference here, whether it is by calling out injustice or just being positive role models. So, for example, just fathers modeling gender parity and, and positive behavior to their to their sons, and uh, many other such examples. The 2007 edition of the Global Gender Gap Report projected that on our current trajectory, it would take 100 years to achieve parity. The good news is that along with those quick wins I referred to earlier, there's a huge opportunity to press the reset button. We, we see this debate quite connected to this debate of the of the future of work and what the um, labor market of the future is really going to look like in light of uh, a lot of kind of technological and demographic change and you know things such as automation and and change in the labor market that that's really going to hit our economies and societies over the coming years. Some of the activities we are do, trying to do then in these task forces are, for example, working uh, with uh, companies, with governments, with education providers to really um, make sure that, for example, training, skills training for jobs of the future is, is equally um, well working for boys and girls. Or, for example, working uh, using new tools such as you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, for example, for, for human resources departments to... Uh, to kind of root out unconscious bias in recruiting and in promotion practices. With such a paradigm shift in the labour market inbound, we should perhaps see this as an opportunity for a clean break, to train people equally for jobs of the future and to use technology and modern work methods to ensure that work practices are flexible so that those who want to start a family are able to do so without derailing their careers. As individuals, we need to talk more about money, to lift one another up and to call out injustices and bias. As businesses, there's so much untapped potential when the pool of talent you draw from is limited and plenty of damage that can be done to your brand if you're not taking this debate seriously. As we've seen, transparency can go a long way, but big businesses need to fundamentally assess and in some cases re-engineer their culture before we're likely to see the gender pay gap effectively close. I hope that we've helped to clear a few things up and given you some ideas of how to make positive steps forward and to respond if you find yourself on the wrong side of this issue. As usual, we've put plenty of links in the show notes, so please keep the conversation going amongst yourselves and with us on Twitter at ThisIsIntern or with me at Alec Dudson. We can do this in far less than 100 years, but only if we continue to push for change. This episode of The Ladder was recorded at Podcast.co in Manchester, who are also taking care of the hosting, so that our show makes its way seamlessly onto your device. Thanks to the team for their support and the use of their purpose-built studio. This week's show has been edited and produced by Fuchsia Summerfield and Calvin Lands. Our soundtrack is also by Calvin Lands. Thanks again to Simon Connor for bringing us together and to the University of Salford for collaborating with us. These episodes are dedicated to my grandma and auntie Jess, who from a very early age taught me that there's no difference between women and men, in between refereeing my kitchen wrestling matches with my little brother. <laughs>